Um, we're talking together, thinking together, dreaming together, applying together the biblical notion of longing. What does it mean to long for something? In this phase of culture, in this time of the year, we are taunted to long everything that comes across the screen, every commercial, every sign, everything is begging us to long for this new product, that new toy, this new device. That's what's going to satisfy us. How do we know as God's people how we have right longings? What does it mean to yearn for something, to yearn for something so badly that it bursts forth? And in Advent, we yearn for Christ's second coming as we look back at his first coming. And so we're going to do that by looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and thinking about those forefathers and sisters who have come before us who yearned to see Christ. And we had the privilege of being able to look back at the cross and see him in stark relief. And so we're going to start by looking together at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read only three verses, 17 through 19. So would you stand if you're willing and able? And I will read Hebrews 11. 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hebrews 11 is a catalog of the saints of old, and it explains for us what faith looks like. Faith is sometimes hard to grasp, and so you describe faith by showing examples of it. And when you come to verse 11, you come to a very, very famous point in Abraham's life. A point which in Genesis 22 that Harrison read for us earlier said God tested him. And here in Hebrews 11, it says when Abraham was tested. How do we know if the longings that we have for our career to be in the right place, for our children to grow up in the right way, for us to receive at Christmas the thing that we long for, to come out of Thanksgiving, having just been with our families. Many of us are longing for Christmas to come where we can dwell together. It's as though time stands still just to be together like we were at Thanksgiving. We long for that again. And some of us who don't have great families, we long for the day when there's far less drama when our family gets together, when there's reconciliation. All of us have longings. Children, all of us long for things. You see things on TV and you long for them. And the way that the Lord refines our longings is the same way that he refined Abraham's. God gives us a test. It says it in Genesis 22 and it says it here. God tested Abraham. What is a test? How do they work? Why do we need them? How do we pass them? Understanding that, text, that tests exist, knowing the nature of them, knowing why we need them so badly and how we pass them. Those are the four points we're going to look at today using these three verses. Are you with me? Here we go. First, what is a test? 
the text says that when, in the NIV, at least in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says when God tested him. It reiterates what he said earlier in Genesis 22. When God tested Abraham, God tests us. He doesn't tempt us, but he tests us. And what does that mean? What is a test? A working definition of a test would be this. A test is something that shows us and grows us. That's what a test is, isn't it? Students, think about a math test. What does a math test do? A math test shows you if you have mastered the concepts presented in class. It shows you if you know them. But it doesn't just show you, it also grows you because it gives you problems that were different than what you studied because there's an infinite number of numbers, different problems. And so it grows you. Do you know the concepts well enough to be able to figure it out when there are new numbers involved? A test grows you, it shows you, and it grows you. And, and all of us who've been through school know, and certainly all of us who teach, know that there are two ways to give a test. There's the kind of test that only shows you the kind of tests that are like um, extremely hard and trying to weed you out, like your first semester in grad school. You know those kind of tests, right? It's where the professor just basically tries to show you what you do not know, to blunder, bludgeon you into uh, 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 submission. But then there are the kind of tests that are just as hard, that not only show you, but also grow you that are graded just as hard, but they grow you in that they help you see not only what I do know, but they help you see what you can become and what you can develop into. And if you're ever going to understand the Bible, you have to know that God always tests you in the second way. And Satan always tests you in the first. Satan always tests you in the first way. Consider Job, for example, friends. Job was a man who was tested, wasn't he? And when Satan tested Job, what did Satan do? He just showed Job all that he wasn't. You're not a servant of the Lord. And he revealed all of, jo all of Job's insecurities right before his eyes. And he basically bludgeoned, bludgeoned him into submission and said, you're never going to measure up to be that kind of servant. And God, through the very same test, said, I'm not only going to show you, Job, but I'm going to grow you. And I'm going to show you not what you're fearful of, but I'm going to show you what you can be, what you can endure, what you can become. And tests for us are extremely hard. That's, that's why they're, they're stressful. Tests for us make our blood pressure go up. If you have a test looking at finals, students, you know that you're anxious about it. Why? That's what makes tests effective. They're hard. And that's why God puts us through tests. And he does it not just to show us, but to grow us. Secondly, that's what a test is. What's the nature of those tests? How do they actually operate? We'll look at verse 18. In the ESV, it says, of whom it was said. But in the NIV, it actually, I think, gets at what the Greek is trying to say even better. One of the few times where I think the NIV wins. The NIV says, even though God had said to him, 
He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Verse 18, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. <clears throat> the growth in our life happens whenever his commands appear or seem to contradict his promises. Growth in your life happens whenever his commands seem to contradict his promises to you. The command for Abraham to sacrifice his son seems to, con to contradict the promise that God had given him that through Isaac, back in Genesis chapter 12, through your son, all the nations will be blessed. But then here God gives him a command to offer up your son, your one and only son. And in your own life, you know that the way you grow is when God's commands seem to contradict his promises or contradict what you would call the wisdom of the world. So, let's just take some examples. When it says, for example, that you are to, um, to be generous with your finances, when you know that your responsibility is to care for your family and save money for them, it appears that God's command contradicts your wisdom, doesn't it? Or when... You, you're, you're dating someone and, and, uh, and you feel pressure, you feel pressure to, to, uh, um, to, uh, to, to act like you're married before you're actually married, right? And you know that your feelings are saying one thing, your wisdom says one thing, but God's command clearly says another. There's your test. That's where you grow. Or something fairly common in Oklahoma, and I have to be so careful saying this because... There's people playing basketball right next door, but it's still true. Like, what about when your son is, like, on a team and in a tournament, and he's the, what if he's the best player on the team? And there's a soccer tournament, there's a basketball tournament, and yet you know that God's Word says, don't forsake the gathering together of believers in worship. How are we to handle that? Because common wisdom says, the team needs them. And we're teaching our child about loyalty to a team. But yet God's Word says, don't forsake worship. How do we, it's a test. Do you see how these work? Do you see how God often cuts his commands right down the center of what your wisdom perceives and thinks and what God commands? What about in your own life or your own career? What about, what about in your career when you know that telling the truth means that you're going to lose a lot of money and you may even lose your job? It's a test. And God gives us scads of these throughout the course of our life where it seems as though his commands and our wisdom contradict each other. They never do. Even in this passage, um, you have not really been tested until you can obey God in such a way that leads you to a kind of death. Like Abraham here was offering up Isaac. And it was, like a, it was like a death to him. And Abraham went into it, even though he knew, figuratively speaking, God could raise Isaac from the dead. And he did. What about in your job? Or your family? Or your life? What has the Holy Spirit challenged you to do through his commands in the word? that seem to contradict your modern wisdom? 
What about those of you who have a teenage son who has cancer? And the glory of the light of your eyes dies. God's word still says that God is good and that he is sovereign. What about those of you who have lost children, who have had miscarriages? What do you take your anger against the Lord? Is he still good? Do you believe God at his promises? Or do you trust your common wisdom? Do you see the tests? There are so many examples in our own lives where we could say, this is the, this is the nature of how tests work. He drives us to see that his commands seem to contradict his promises, but they never do. So if a test is something that shows us and grows us, and the nature of tests is that they seem to present us where a situation where his commands seem to contradict our wisdom or maybe even God's promises, then why do we need them? Why do we need them? Because many of us don't even allow tests to happen in our life. Like as soon as you feel like you're tested and your, your wisdom is challenged, you immediately discount the Bible and you stick with your wisdom. You don't even allow yourself to be challenged by it because you know that your wisdom is right. But what if you're wrong? What if God's word and his commands are true and right and real? Why do you need that? You need that because in the text it says, notice what it says in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. See a problem with that? How many sons did Abraham have? He had two, right? Why in the text does it say, offer up his only son? The Canadian um, pastor, A.W. Tozer, said that Abraham had a love lust for his son and that Isaac became his only. That in Abraham's eyes, Abraham only had one son. It was the son of promise given to him. And we all know the story of what happened when Abraham tried to do an end run around God's command. And he remember he had Ishmael with Sarah, his wife's handmaiden, um, Hagar. And it brought all kinds of problems to the family. And here Abraham is, a father who looks at his two sons and he sees his one son, the son of promise, the one to whom everything would come through, the one who would be the great savior of the family and of all humanity. Through Isaac, all the nations shall be blessed, Abraham knew. And Isaac, somewhere along the way, became his only. And in Genesis 22, if you heard Harrison read it, it said, now take your son, God said to Abraham, your one and only son. And God is simply acknowledging to Abraham what Abraham already knew in his heart, that Isaac had become his only. And why do you need tests? Friends, we need tests because our good onlys can be more dangerous to us than our bad deeds. That the way that sin works is that it takes the things that are good things, great things, and sin works by turning up the heat on those things. It brings them to boil so that we see that this is the thing that satisfies us. This is our only. This is our Isaac. And God tests Abraham by going straight to the heart of what Abraham idolized before the Lord and said, Abraham, I want you to take your only 
your son. And I want you to offer him as a whole burnt offering. A whole burnt offering in the Old Testament was an offering that was given completely. A thank offering would be something that was burned and then part of it is saved and consumed. But a whole burnt offering was something that was offered completely up. You could read about this in Exodus and also again in Numbers. Something that was completely offered up to the Lord, completely, without saving any of it. And here God asks Abraham to offer up his only as a whole burnt offering. What's your only? What do you grow concerned about when it's threatened? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, we've seen over the last several weeks together. He's like a tree planted by the water who yields its fruit, whose leaves never wither, does not fear when the year of drought comes. Don't you want to be like that? God asks for your only in order for you to become like that. Because something is sapping you of the vitality with which God desires to have in his relationship with you and in your own assurance of his love for you. And any time that you find that God has asked of you to sacrifice something that cuts to the quick of your heart, you're finding that God is asking you, like Abraham, to offer up your only as a whole burnt offering. Listen, we need these kind of tests because without them, God could never rattle us out of the cage that we've created for our lives. He could never help us see the sunlight on the other side of the brick walls that we've built to protect ourselves. And these tests are gifts from God. And the question is not what are they? We've learned that, not how do they work. We know that they strike to the core of the tension of the commands seem to contradict our common knowledge sometimes. And we know that we need them because we have onlys in our life. But how do you pass them? And if you look down at verse 19, it says that we pass them by first looking to the lamb. Notice what it says in verse 19 where it says that Abraham considered the promises of God. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And in other translations, it says that, that he reasoned or he thought, which teaches us something very important, that obeying the commands of God, despite what you think, are actually the most reasonable thing you could ever do. Obeying what God asks us to do is the most reasonable decision you can ever make. It's not blind faith. It's completely reasonable. Because God is able even to raise your onlys from death. And in fact, it's not until, not until you've given your onlys without condition that God is able to show you how true that is. Being able to walk in obedience to Christ's commands is, is not 1957. It is 2018 and on because it is the most reasonable thing you can do, Christians, because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You've been given a new identity, and the gospel isn't just a truth you believe, but it's an entire new world order. It's an entire new worldview through which you understand the world. You recognize the brokenness of the world and the hope that we long for at Advent is the good news of the gospel that Christ loves you. 
And the way that you pass the test is by looking to the Lamb. And how do you do that? You first have to consider the reasonableness of your obedience to Him. Abraham thought that to offer Isaac was to go to death. Moses thought to go to Pharaoh was to go to death. And Jesus thought to go to the cross was to go to death. In the first situation, it was a near death. With Moses, it was no death. And with Jesus, it was a real death. But in every case, they considered, they reasoned. Jesus said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Of course it contradicted modern wisdom. But he leaned into the commands of his father. We have to be as Christians in Tulsa and Owasso. We have to be people who understand God's word so much that we're able to see the reasonable, reasonableness of it and obey him even when it seems like our wisdom contradicts the commands of God. And this will only intensify perhaps for us and get worse. But it calls us to have honest conversations about where our identity lies as God's people. And if we are going to pass the test, we have to see the reasonableness of always obeying God when our tests come. And secondly, and perhaps even more important, importantly, you look to Christ as the way you pass the test. The problem in this passage for me is that it looks like not only does God's command contradict his promises, but it looks like his command is actually immoral upon first reading, isn't it? He's commanding his son, it would seem on first reading, he's commanding the father to kill his son. How does that not contradict with thou shalt not murder? But you have to understand the way that the Old Testament viewed firstborn sons to understand why that's not a contradiction at all. And I'm not merely trying to explain it away. I'm trying to help you see from Abraham's perspective why he was willing to go through with it. Because firstborn sons, it's in Numbers chapter 3 and Exodus 22, firstborn sons were forfeited to the Lord. They were his. They were to be marked off. And a father could purchase that son back with five shekels. And so fathers would buy their firstborn sons back. And it was a way of offering to the Lord the awareness that my firstborn son belongs to you, but I'm going to buy him back. And it was a foreshadowing of the day when the true son would be offered for us. And we couldn't just pay five shekels. The father in heaven had to give his son, and he couldn't just offer five shekels to buy his son back, but he actually allowed his son for you and for me to die. And Abraham knows, as he's going up Mount Moriah, why can't we just do the five shekel thing? Why can't I just have my son? And the Lord says, no. You offer him up as a whole burnt offering. I know I'm a sinner, but you promised. Why well, can't, and you can kind of feel the old man Abraham wrestling under the stars. How can you be the just and the justifier of my son Isaac if I give him to you as a whole burnt offering and God just says, just do it. Obey me. And notice what it says. It says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. It doesn't say that Abraham knew that God would raise him from the dead. It doesn't say that he would raise him from the dead. It says that he could raise him from the dead. So Abraham doesn't have the script when he's going up Mount Moriah. And we often want the script. Okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give or I'm going to 
I'm going to trust you in this area of my life. I'm going to love even though that guy at work is constantly undercutting me. I'm going to take the high road. And God says, you can't get the script before you go up the mountain. Because it's at the mountain of the Lord that the Lord will provide. In the text, it says, at the very end of Genesis 22, the verse we read in verse 14, it says, upon the mountain the Lord will provide. And Abraham named it, on the mountain the Lord will provide. And Mount Moriah, of course, was, was where? It, is, it was right next to Calvary right in the heart of modern-day Jerusalem. It was the place upon which many years later, another father would walk with his son upon whom the wood for his sacrifice would also be placed, wouldn't it? And whereas Isaac said, Father, I, I see the wood and I, I, I see the knife and I see the fire, but where's the, where's the lamb? And here Jesus walking up that very same hill many years later has the wood on his back. And he says, Father, I, I, I feel the wood. I, I feel the fire. But where's the lamb? And Jesus, of course, knew that he was the lamb. And it was out of the mouth of a Roman centurion who wasn't even a Christ follower at the time who saw this and shouted out in complete shock, surely this was what? The Lamb of God. What are your onlys? Those longings in your heart that God is testing and refining for you. He wants your only. And you can't ask for the script before you obey Him. That's not how it works. It's a test. On the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. And notice that what God says of Abraham. When Abraham offers up his son and just as he's about to bring the knife down upon his child, the angel says, stop. And the Lord says, now I know. Now I know. And of course, the Lord always knew. But now Abraham knew, didn't he? Now Abraham knew who his real only was, that his only of a son had, be, had been decentered. And there is no better time than Advent, brothers and sisters, for the Lord to decenter those onlys in our life so that we can say, through the tests, through the mountain, where there is no script, where we can say, now I know. Now I know that I'm a child of the King. Now I know that I'm assured of God's love for me because what looked like complete and total death, I told the truth. I thought I was going to lose my job. Maybe even I did. But out of that comes a resurrection. And the promises of God are ours, and they never fail us. They are there to give us a living hope and a resurrection far more beautiful than you could ever hope or desire. A test is something that shows us and grows us. And it works by pitting up God's commands against our wisdom and leaving you in that tension. We need them because we have little onlys like Isaac was to Abraham. And the Lord wants those because he wants nothing else but to give you the kind of life most beneficial to you and to your family and to the world. And that requires painful sacrifices of those onlys in our life. And you pass the test by looking to the one and only son, Christ himself who bore the penalty of your sin on that cross so that you're able with joy, 
not drudgery, to offer up your onlys because you trust that those promises are true. And how do you know they're true? Because you look back at what happened on Christmas Day many years ago. Without much fanfare, Christ came in the incarnation to grow up to be the boy, the man, who took the wood upon his back and climbed that very same mountain that Moses once climbed with his son. Except unlike Abraham's situation, when God brought down that dagger, there was no angel to stop his hand. And it came down upon Christ. And Christ was offered up as a whole burnt offering for you so that you might be wholly devoted to him. And that you might be able to say in your heart of hearts, now I know I'm not owned by the materialism. I'm not owned by the career. I'm not owned by my child doing this or that for my glory. I'm owned by Christ. And it radically transforms the whole of my life. Amen? That's the good news of beginning Advent together, to have our longings refined as we near the celebration of our Savior's first arrival. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to say, now we know how much you love us through the tests that you present to us. Now we know that Christ truly did come for us. Now we know where the hope of the world lies. Now we know that we are therefore not under condemnation, but that we have been purchased with the blood of the Lamb set apart, made new, justified in your eyes as holy because of the work of our Son. Oh, Father, this Advent, would you refine our longings as you did Abraham's, and would you help us to long rightly for the beauty of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.